Morning, everybody. Morning. Why don't you haul out your hymnals? Because we're going to look at the confession. Chapter 33, found on page 867. Eight hundred and sixty-seven of the hymnal, Westminster Confession, chapter thirty-three, and we will be looking at paragraphs one and two. But before we begin, let's uh, let's open with prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day. We ask you to please help us to uh, devote it to you. Uh, please bless it unto us. Help us to make a diligent use of it. We ask, O oh Lord, that you would please profit our time as we study your word this morning. Uh, we pray this for your glory and for our good. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so as you know, the Confession of Faith is the confession of this church. And we hold that it summarizes... Um, what the Bible has to teach about all these various things reflected in the different chapters. In this chapter, it says, of the last judgment, chapter 33 of the Westminster Confession. Um, and again, if you just came in, it's page H67 in the back of your hymnal. So I'm going I'm to read aloud uh, paragraphs 1 and 2. And today what we're going to be talking about is uh, the secret rapture doctrine, uh, which um, most dispensationalists hold to. Um, all right, so beginning with paragraph 1, chapter 33 of the Confession. God hath appointed a day wherein he will judge the world in righteousness by Jesus Christ, to whom all power and judgment is given of the Father, in which day not only the apostate angels shall be judged, but likewise all persons that have lived upon earth shall appear before the tribunal of Christ, to give an account of their thoughts, words, and deeds, and to receive according to what they have done in the body, whether good or evil. Paragraph 2. The end of God's appointing this day is for the manifestation of the glory of his mercy in the eternal salvation of the elect, and of his justice in the damnation of the reprobate who are wicked and disobedient. For then shall the righteous go into everlasting life and receive that fullness of joy and refreshing which shall come from the presence of the Lord. But the wicked who know not God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ shall be cast into eternal torments and be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Okay. Uh, before the relevance of all that to the, the question before us, uh, I want to say a couple of introductory words. Our, our object in today's lesson as we consider the secret rapture of the church uh, is really to, uh, instead of trying to take into account like the majority school opinion of most dispensationalists about the, the rapture and then criticizing it uh, point by point is instead to go to the scriptures and see what the scriptures have to say about the return of the Lord um, and then see, evaluate for ourselves whether or not we think that what the scriptures are teaching is a twofold returning of Christ. First, a secret return when he gathers up his saints, and then a later return when he comes to judge the world. 
separated by a number of years according to the doctrine. Um, so that's the procedure that we're going to follow as we'll be looking at the scripture. Now, looking at the confession, our church's interpretation of the scripture, um, what will occur this day? It, make refer- it makes reference to a day which um, means a, a, a certain time. What will happen on that day? Looking at paragraphs one and two, uh, his second coming, or parousia, is appearing. Uh, the resurrection of all the dead, and the gathering of all his saints, and the final judgment, all of which we will say that we will argue that the scriptures teach are visible events, and that they all occur in conjunction and are not separated by years or other significant eschatological events. So this, I, put, I had us read this so that we could juxtapose what we believe and what uh, most dispensationalists believe about the return of the Lord. You see the point? The point is we think it happens all at once. He comes again to judge the living and the dead. He raises the wicked and the righteous. Uh, the judgment begins and so forth. And that all occurs at the same, at the same time. That's what we believe. That's what the confession asserts that the scriptures teach. And if you don't recall, I mean, uh, I don't know if, every, if anyone or everyone in the class, whether present or online, um, has ever believed in the secret rapture of the church or may still conceivably believe in the secret rapture of the church. Uh, whether you do or you don't, you're probably familiar with the idea. It was very much popularized by a series of fictional books and movies, um, Left Behind series, you know, the whole idea of you don't want to be left behind. Okay, when Jesus comes for his saints, he's going to come secretly, and he's going to snatch up his saints. They're going to be changed. Those in the graves will be raised. Jesus will depart with his saints and go away for a period of time. Go to heaven. And then, the reason this is such a popular doctrine with dispensationalists is because after that happens then the tribulation begins and then the Jewish believers come to the Lord so you see that you can see that two 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 phased or rather two uh, a divided uh, people of God God's got his his Gentile church and he's got his 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 covenant people the Jewish people and so during that time um, Many Jews will come to the faith and be converted. So I'm sure that most of you are, if not all of you, are familiar with that idea. But we believe that the scriptures teach that when Jesus returns, everyone's going to be resurrected or transformed, as the case may be. And um, the judgment begins. There is no period of years between. There's not a two-stage return of the Lord. Okay, so that's our position. Okay. Um, I have a lot of material to get through today, so what I'll ask is that if you have any questions or uh, comments or observations, uh, make a note, don't forget them, and then hopefully at the end we'll have a period in, in which we can, we can deal with those. Okay. So, many believe that Jesus' t- return is two-staged. First one's secret. 
for his saints. The second one, open, public, with his saints. You see. First return is for, for his saints. Second return is with his saints. But I'm going to take us through a bunch of scriptures that deal with the return of the Lord. And we'll see what, the, what you believe is what the scripture or what the confession asserts that the scripture teaches. That there is one return of the Lord. It's public, it's open, it's visible, it's audible. And all of these things occur at the same time. So let's first turn to John 5 and verse 28. Now try to keep in mind that the object of this lesson is not to try to anticipate all of the counter-arguments or uh, answers or interpretations of the passages we're about to look at. We don't have the time for that. And uh, basically don't, we just don't have the time for it. As you'll see, we'll, we'll use up most of the class just dealing with some of these things. Now, although, I'm sorry, John 5 and verse 28... Um, the question is what's the natural the natural reading the unforced the uncoached meaning that presents itself you know the plain reading as, as the dispensationalists are like or want to, uh, to say of the scriptures in these places talking about the return of the Lord all right, John 5, verse 28. Our Lord says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. All right, well, this, Jesus is saying that at one point in time, he says one hour, all the saints... All who, excuse me, all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. And then he breaks that all into two groups. He says, those who've done good to resurrection of life and those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment. With the secret rapture doctrine, the idea of a twofold return of the Lord, he raises the just, the righteous, Years before he raises the wicked unto judgment. What's the natural understanding of this verse? There can be answers to it, I suppose. But if you're just reading the text and you don't come to it with any preconditioning or presuppositions, what do you walk away from? Well, you walk away with the notion that at the same time the Lord returns and he, call, and, he, and he calls forth from the tombs righteous and wicked. They will be uh, rewarded and judged, as the case may be. That's, what, that's the natural unforced meaning is, that presents itself. Let's turn to Luke. fourteen fourteen.
Okay, here, looking at the last part of this verse, it says, For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Read by itself, that would have, this would not be a concrete case. But as you begin to, as we begin, as we begin to stack up scripture passages upon one another, we can see that the natural re- meaning of this passage is that you receive your heavenly reward upon your resurrection. But the way the rapture doctrine has it, the twofold return of the Lord, you're raised up at one time. Things are kind of paused while the Jewish church uh, is brought into the the kingdom, and then later, after all of that. Years later, um, you receive your reward, your repayment. And the King James says recompense. So the resurrection and the judgment seem to coincide here. Okay, now, the coming of Christ, we argue, is represented in the New Testament as a single event. It's open, public, visible, and audible. On that point, let us, return, let us go to Matthew 24. The coming of Christ is represented in the New Testament as single, open, public, visible, and audible. There's nothing private or hidden away about it, as we'll see. And it's not secret. Luke, oh, I'm sorry. Matthew 24, verses 29 to 31. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. Then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send his angels out with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven. To the next. So Christ returns visibly for his elect, his church. Appear, you see the language appear in this text, a sign, you, appear, you see that weird appear in the text, a secret sign serves no purpose. They will see the Son of Man, see the Son of Man. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and gather his elect. Uh, Looking at verses 27 and 28. For as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be this coming of the Son of the Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Um, The coming of the Son of Man is visible, like lightning. Looking at verses 37 to 41. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, and marrying, and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Um. I'll read on. The two men, uh, then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. 
So his coming is like the flood, which, when it rolled out, was not hidden. And the coming of the Son of Man occurs before the taking or leaving of verses 40 to 41. Let's look at verse 39 again. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Let's compare that with Luke 17. Let's go there. Luke 17. Verses 30 to 34. Luke 17, starting verse 30 to 34. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let the one who was on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life shall keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women in grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. Back up at verse 30. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Apocalyptitai in the Greek, that's where we get the word apocalypse, which is the Latin for the revelation, um, which is why the book of uh, Revelation is called by the Roman Catholics the book of the apocalypse, because it's the revelation, it's the revealing. The same reference to the flood here. And as in Matthew the revelation of the Son of Man occurs just prior to the famous taking or leaving. Taking or leaving. Now all of this audible, visible stuff is occurring in the scriptures prior to the taking and the leaving, but in the secret rapture doctrine, the taking and leaving occurs secretly. When they were taken, Christ returns secretly, not openly, not visibly, not audibly. And then the taking appears. In rapture doctrine, Jesus comes secretly first. Later, years later, he returns. And that's when he comes openly. So you see that that's not supported by the scriptures having to do with, with Jesus' return and with this taking or leaving. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15. Don't forget, if you have any questions about that, just uh, save them in, uh, until the end, and we'll, we, hopefully we'll have time to, to deal with those. I can also uh, email you my, my notes that I have for this, so that you can, uh, if you missed a reference or something like that, you can... Uh, just hit me up for an email, and I'll send you this by email. I also have one hard copy with me if, if uh, for, for anybody that wants it. So 1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 52. 
1 Corinthians 15, verses 51 to 52. Paul writes, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of, a lo- of, of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we shall be changed. So referring to believers... Paul says that we will all be changed, and he tells us when we will all be changed, at the last trumpet. If all believers are changed at the same time, at a single trumpet blast, how can there be another batch of believers later during the end of a tribulation week? There are, I know that dispensationalists wrestle with these passages and they provide what they believe are are answers for them but what do the scriptures present to the reader who has not been compelled to come to the text and uh, without these presuppositions without the kind of doctrines that dispensationalism teaches you don't have to have answers to deal with these texts The texts themselves, if dealt with on their own terms, present a very simple thing, a very simple, uncomplicated thing. When the Lord returns, it is visible, it is audible. There's one return. It's visible, audible, open, it's public. The resurrection of the righteous and the wicked occurs, and the judgment takes place. The righteous receive their reward, and the wicked receive their just condemnation. That's what the scriptures always teach. And I'll deal, at the close, I will deal with this tendency uh, uh, to respond to the clarity that we find in the scriptures with artful uh, answers. All right. Let's go to Second Corinthians. Uh, sorry, Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians four. I'm sorry. Second Thessalonians one verses five through ten. Second Thessalonians one five through ten. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the saints receive their relief 
the relief that the apostle is holding out to the church happens when Christ appears. Appears. In verse 7, the, uh, the revelation at the appearing of the Lord Jesus in the Greek. When he, re- when he appears and when he judges the wicked is when the saints are going to receive their relief. Isn't this passage actually directed at the entire church, not just the Thessalonians? The answer is in the when of their deliverance. When he comes in wrath to save and to judge. That's why it's applicable for the whole church, because that's the relief the king provides for all the persecuted church. And the whole church is persecuted to greater or lesser degrees since our Lord ascended. I probably should have... Okay, no, that's fine. First, let's go to First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians chapter 4. First Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 17. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then he, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the, air, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Does verse 16 suggest to the reader that something secret is occurring? No. <laughs> that would be No. <laughs> Save your comments to the end. (laughs) So many think that the secret rapture is Christ coming, like I said before, for his saints. And the second coming, the official second coming, is Christ coming with his saints. But in the New Testament, Christ is taught to come with his saints when he comes for his saints. And I direct you to 1 Thessalonians 3.13. The appearing of the Lord, perusion to curio with all his saints. All right. Now let's go ahead and consider this whole idea of left behind, bad, taken, good. So left behind, bad or good. What do the scriptures teach? Along with this notion of a secret snatching away of believers years before the visible return of Christ when he raises the wicked and judges the world is the idea that one must therefore be sure to be taken and not left behind. And again, we could let's go back to Matthew 24 as we discuss this. Matthew 24 Verses 40-ish. 
So don't be left behind is the, is the call to the generation according to those who teach this doctrine of the secret return of the Lord. The secret rapture. But in the Bible, it, it is uniformly the case that it's the wicked that are taken away and that the righteous are left behind. Let's turn to Isaiah 4. Isaiah 4, verses 2 through 4. What was that again? Isaiah 4, and verses 2 through 4. In that day the branch of the Lord shall appear, shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been reconciled for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. So those left behind are the holy remnant. All right, now, this is going to be a pattern that we're seeing here. We're going to see that the Old Testament, in which Jesus and the apostles are steeped in their thinking, the ones who are taken away are the bad ones. The ones that remain are the righteous. And we'll we'll see how this is actually obvious in Matthew 24 when we ultimately return there. So that's the case here in Isaiah 4. The wicked are taken away, washed out. Those left behind are the holy remnant. Let's stay in Isaiah, but look to chapter 39. Isaiah 39, verses 6 and 7. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up Till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away and shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. So here the same idea. The wicked are the ones taken away. They're the ones receiving the judgment. Let's look at Jeremiah. Jeremiah 6. Verses 11 and 12. Jeremiah 6, 11 and 12. Therefore I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherings of the young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken, the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of this land. Taken is the verb for the outpouring of God's judgment. Zephaniah 3. This might take us a a second to find. It's in the minor prophets, past the major prophets, go past Daniel and all of that, go into the minor prophets.
Okay, Zephaniah, after Habakkuk, before Zechariah. Zephaniah 3. Eleven and twelve. On that day you shall be put to shame because of the deeds which you have rebelled against me, for then I will remove from your I will remove from your midst your proudly exalted ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, etc. So In the prophets, the wicked are the ones taken away from the sacred space. And the righteous are the ones who remain. And for those, like I said, who are steeped in the Old Testament, as Jesus and the apostles were, I'm going to quote uh, someone here, they would have understood that to be taken was negative, and that to be left behind referred to something positive. And that's by Benjamin Merkel. He's the man whose journal article in the Westminster Theological Journal, um, from whom I, I got this part of the lesson about left behind being actually the good thing in the scriptures and being taken away is the bad thing in the scripture. To wit, let's return to Matthew 24. But by the way, Benjamin Merkel also wrote one of the books that I read about dispensationalism, about continuity versus discontinuity. So, uh, Matthew 24. You'll kind of kick yourself, I think, if you're like me, after you read the passage with this biblical mindset of being taken or left away. Matthew 24, verses 38 to 44 again. 38 to 44 of Matthew 24. For as in those days, before the flood, they were eating and drinking and marrying and given in marriage until that day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be this coming, the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be uh, in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Uh, therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this. Uh, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, also you must be ready for the Son of Man, who is co- uh, the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect. Okay. Yeah, that's that's a little fuzzy spot of the notes here. Um, In some, there's little doubt that Matthew views those that were killed by the flood. Here, look at the text, as being the ones who are taken away. Look at verse 39. And they were unaware, the generation of Noah were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. In the Greek, the word is not to sweep. It's the same word that's typically used and translated as taken. Very good. Good on the the King James in that instance. Um, And they were unaware until the flood came and took them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then 
Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Interestingly, let's, let's go back to the flood for a moment. Let's go back to Genesis. Let's go to Genesis 7. And see a little bit more of this biblical way of thinking about this. Genesis 7 and verse 23. Genesis 7 and verse 23. He blotted out everything that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left. Moses' presentation of who are taken away and who are left are completely consistent with Matthew and his recording of what our Lord is saying about this imagery. Jesus compares his return to the flood event. Let's see, 24. They were eating and drinking and giving in marriage the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. As we just saw, Noah was left. They were taken. So will be in the day of the Son of Man. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. And the same with the, the, the women. Same imagery. So only Noah was left, the wicked were taken. So so it is in the days of the Son of Man, his return. All right, so we come to a conclusion. We we will have time uh, for questions and comments. Skipping over some of this stuff. Like I said, if you want the full notes, there's a lot of footnotes here that are very helpful, I think, too. Um, Just go ahead and hit me up and I'll send it to you. Uh, Or you can have, I have one copy, hard copy here. Okay, the conclusion is there is a second coming of Christ. And this event is often called in scripture parousia, apocalypsis, or epiphania, which are used interchangeably in the New Testament. And none of these terms suggest secrecy. In fact, they communicate the exact opposite meaning. What the saints as since Paul's generation, since the, Jesus' generation during his earthly ministry, what, what we have always awaited was his revealing. His appearing, Apocalypse is revealing, his appearing, Epiphania, has since the first century been our blessed hope, as Paul puts it in Titus 2.13. There is no uh, interim, demi-return, plainly taught in scripture, nor any hint of an invisible return of Christ anywhere. Any secrecy involved with his return has to do with its timing, not the nature of that return. It has to do with the timing of his arrival, not the nature of the arrival itself. This was also the case for the flood. The timing was a secret to the wicked. The nature of the arrival itself was not a secret. 
And they were unaware until, it says there, they were unaware until the flood came. Parallel being, they were unaware of our Lord's coming until he came. You know, looking at the, his second coming from backwardly. If you come to the New Testament's teaching about his return without any preconceptions or preconditioning, you come away with the belief that the most natural interpretation of its message, its uniform message, is that Christ's return, that we are all looking forward to since their day, the Apostles' Day, Christ's return is single, it's open, it's public, it's visible, audible, and will be attended by the resurrection of all humanity, good and wicked, and the final judgment. You have to be taught otherwise to see otherwise in the New Testament. Of course, human art and ingenuity can always assert at every place where Jesus' return is described in the New Testament as visible, such as Revelation 1-7, that such is simply his later coming, and that a secret coming is still possible. But that would be to cling to a belief for which there is actually no evidence at all in the New Testament. So I'm going to use an analogy now to make this point. Let's say... Let's say that the doctrine that we are confronting today were not what we have been confronting. The notion that Christ's second coming is a secret. For the first coming, there's a, sure, there's a return in glory to judge the living and the dead. But it, there's also a secret coming before that. Let's say instead of confronting that, we were confronting this doctrine that I'm going to make up. That... When Christ's, re- Christ's return is twofold. Before he comes again in glory, he's going to return again in a state of humiliation. He will come again before he comes again in glory, but before he does that, he will come again in a state of humiliation, like his first coming. Well, what would you do to confront that? Anybody? We've only got three, three and a half minutes, so somebody better say something. I mean, you have the prophecy of the suffering servant, Isaiah. Is that what you're referring to? How would you confront the doctrine? They might say... Very good. You'd point to New Testament passages like that describing his coming as, as um, open and visible. You'd say, here's all the evidence right here. The evidence is all that he comes again in glory. Not that he's going to come again in a state of humiliation before he comes in glory. And what would their response be to you? Well, he could still come back before that time with a glorious return in a state of humiliation. You'd say there's no evidence of that. So you can disprove it. You can't disprove it. And you could gerrymander, or I should say jury rig, some of these passages to suggest that that were true. You could, call, you could, you could deduce some of these Old Testament passages and say, you know, this suffering servant's going to be coming. 
Well, we would say that that occurred. He came in a state of humiliation and, you know, paid the debt of sin at his first coming. At his second coming, he's coming again in glory. That would be our response. That's what, the, that's what all the evidence suggests. So that's what we're confronting with here. All the evidence is open, open return of Christ, visible, audible, trumpets, loud voices, voice of an archangel. All these things are all very public and open. But they still say, well, there's a secret to return all, before all of that. There's a secret return where it's surreptitious to get his saints and then come back later in openly and audibly and visibly. So there are answers to these verses that we've adduced, but I think they're the, those answers are the same nature than the answers to our objection to the notion that Christ would come again prior to his coming again in glory in a state in an estate of humiliation and not of glory. All the evidence is that he'll return again in glory. All the evidence is that when he returns, he will raise both the, the righteous and the unrighteousness to, to the reward and judgment. And, and when he returns, it'll be open, public, audible, visible. And by the way, this whole idea of being taken and left behind completely messed up. People don't want to be left behind. Or excuse me, they want to be left behind. See, it's all in your head. You want to be left behind in the scriptures. Even Matthew says it clearly. Genesis says it. The prophets say it. The wicked are taken away. The righteous are left to to inherit what's, you know, uh, God's sacred space. And uh, yes, John? I would say that's the part that I think you could focus on most of the time spent in that dark place of left behind versus taken was because of a misunderstanding of the benefits of being left behind, that the righteous are left behind. And so is there a concise way of trying to show what that parable is about other than readiness? I mean, that's the, the challenge is that if you say, well, what is this parable about? The workers or the or women grinding, it's about readiness of being awake and serving the Lord rather than being caught unaware of his return. But too frequently it's, oh no, that's about the being taken. <laughs> so. Yeah, I mean, there's a par- the, the parallel of the virgins, you see the similarity there between the, being the readiness and the lack of readiness, and then the shame versus, you know, receiving the, the bridegroom. But, uh, yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean... I think that you, if you can only understand what he's saying in that passage about being taken or left away. If you actually look at it closely um, and, and look at how you know, he moves from Noah to the coming of the Son of Man. Look at the verbs and understand what he's actually saying. And then when you compare it to what the, old, whole, you know, the whole Old Testament is saying about taken and left away, including Genesis 7, about Noah, that he was left and the others were taken. Well, you could be part of the 144,000. <laughs> But that's all open in, in, in the scripture. That's always open and public and audible and visible as well. If you look at the surrounding context and the way Paul uses that language and other arrival passages and stuff, um, we have it imported into our head. We've been preconditioned to think of that as a secret thing. 
But everything in the scriptures communicates that it's open, audible. So when he comes back, here's the short answer. When he comes back, the scriptures are teaching that um, he will be seen. There will be a voice of an archangel. There will be trumpet sound. The dead will rise. Uh, his own will meet him in the air. And then he'll descend to the earth and complete his return in the company of the saints whom he's raised. That's the imagery. And in fact, in the uh, ancient Near East, when a dignitary would be coming, or, or like a, or a noble or a royal person would be approaching a city, all the dignitaries would go out and meet them and escort them in. So that, that could be a, uh, the idea here, is that when the king's returning, he summons his own, and they all come down together. But anytime that talks about the Lord taking away, and that verbs are, those verbs are there, but there's nothing secret about it. It's all audible public. He takes them up, snatches them up, and then continues his return. To John, this question is interesting. I was just curious, what do you see as the uh, difference between dispensational premillennialism and historical premillennialism? Chileism. Um, yeah, that's that's a whole discussion, and I, I'd want to come more prepared to discuss it intelligently, and we're already over. So let's let's go ahead and close in prayer. Hopefully this is useful. If you want the notes, I, like I said, email me. Scripture Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Uh, we thank you for your word. Please help us to understand it uh, so that we will serve you better and uh, teach it more wisely. Please be with us now as we gather together for your worship. Help us to, uh, to worship you in spirit and in truth with undistracted minds and undivided hearts. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.